If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Quran 49:13. O mankind, truly we created you from a male and a female, and we made you peoples and tribes that you may come to know one another. Surely the most noble of you before God are the most reverent of you. Truly God is knowing, aware. Here ends the reading from a kindred tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I would be willing to bet this is the only church in America that ended its prayer of confession this morning in the name of Allah, the most merciful we pray. Good for us. When Barbara Brown Taylor teaches world religions at Piedmont, she knows what the hardest lesson is going to be. When her students from North Georgia are asked to write something they already know about Islam up on the board, the first word is always terrorism. If there is a Muslim student in class, she may ask not to be identified as such because as one of her students put it, I do not want my classmates to see me that way. That way is, of course, the, the way a post-9-11 world has made Muslims into what Dr. Taylor calls shadow bearers, where the majority are made to carry the stigma of violence for which a minority of its false followers are responsible. So here's what happens. Every time a terrorist act occurs, Muslims hold their collective breath praying that the perpetrator's name will not be Muhammad or Abdul. If it turns out to be Timothy, as in Timothy McVeigh, or Stephen Paddock, the terrorist who slaughtered concertgoers in Las Vegas, or Patrick Crucius, who committed his terrorist act at a Walmart in El Paso, or Adam Lanza, who murdered children at Sandy Hook, and I could go on, a long list of non-Muslim terrorists, Muslims know they will not have to issue a standard press release disclaimer, which they keep copies of at the mosque, denouncing the act and saying what no other religious group is expected to say, this is not the action of a true Christian or a true Jew. No one expects that. In fact, the media does not even make a connection between a terrorist act and the faith of the terrorist unless he is a Muslim. Americans know very little about the world's second largest religion, 
and much of what they do know is incorrect. We are all the victims of a constant barrage of images and political rhetoric, not to mention overheated preachers who are looking for an easy target to peddle fear and hatred. Most people do not know, for example, that Indonesia has the largest Muslim population in the world or that the majority of Muslims are not Arab. Even fewer know that Muslims revere Jesus and talk more about his mother than the Bible does. The word Islam is from an Arabic word that means submission to the will of God. It comes from the same root as salam, which means peace. So in order to achieve true peace of heart and mind, Muslims believe one must submit to God and live according to God's divinely revealed laws. Muhammad was not the founder of a new religion, but is believed to be the final prophet in a long line of prophets to bring the message of the worship of and submission to the one true God, or pure monotheism. Muslims believe that all the prophets brought this message, including Abraham, mentioned 100 times in the Quran, Noah, Moses, mentioned 200 times in the Quran, and Jesus mentioned 90 times in the Quran. But they believe God is God and humans are humans and so no human gets the title of Lord or Savior except God. As you can guess, the doctrine of the Trinity or God in three persons is not only something Muslims cannot believe or Jews either, but for both faiths is a sign that Christians abandoned biblical monotheism for a kind of doctrinal polytheism. When the Nicene Creed describes Jesus as being, quote, of one substance with the Father, a fundamental break occurs with both Judaism and Islam because in Judaism this is idolatry, and in Islam, which holds as its most sacred principle that nothing should be compared to or equated with God, there's a problem. When over 50 members of this church went on our final field trips, bless their heart, last Wednesday afternoon, we sat in folding chairs in the mosque at the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma. We were facing northeast-ish toward Mecca, and we were taught and also entertained by my longtime friend and colleague from OCU, Imad Inchasi. Imad also happens to be the Imam or leader of the mosque, so calling him Imam Imad is tricky. And if you say it three times, people will think you're stuttering. But you could not find a more avuncular or good-humored man in the religious community of Oklahoma City. He's not only wise, he is just plain funny. When asked if women in Islam are submissive, he said, you obviously haven't met my wife. <laughs> when asked if he knows any terrorists, he said, you should have known my two-year-old. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of our time together was when Dr. Nchasi explained how differently Jews and Christians understand that familiar story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this is interpreted one way, but Muslims see it very differently. Just for a quick review, we know that Abraham and Sarah could not have a child, or so they thought, 
and that Sarah gave Abraham her blessing to sleep with Hagar. She was Sarah's Egyptian servant or her slave, and in no time, Hagar was pregnant and tensions arose between Sarah and Hagar, and the text says Sarah treated Hagar harshly until one day Hagar ran away. She fled into the desert where she quickly ran out of water until an angel appeared and water was provided and she was told to return to Sarah and give birth to her son whom she would call Ishmael and the child would be, quote, a wild ass of a man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the face of all his brethren, a.k.a. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, the riders of camels and the fierce warriors. This is how storytellers explain how branches appeared on the world's family tree. Later, after Sarah gives birth to Isaac, tensions arose again, and Sarah apparently found the teenage Ishmael mocking her son. She demanded Hagar be punished, Abraham was reluctant to comply. God said, do so. He gave Hagar and Ishmael bread and water and just sent them away into the wilderness. Again, she ran out of water. And again, she was led to a well by God and told that a great nation would in fact come from Ishmael. Jews and Christians see this story as a covenant story that favors Isaac, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Muslims, on the other hand, see it as the miraculous intervention of God to save Hagar and her son, and they see Hagar as Abraham's second wife, not his concubine, and they see her as black and her banishment as a test for the birth of a nation. Dr. Nchasi paused and looked at us all and said, you all know that we're all the children of Abraham, but there's something else you might not have thought of, my friends. I stand before you today as your brother from a different mother. <laughs> we all worship the same God, he told us, even though some people believe that because God is called Allah, Muslims worship a different God, but Allah is simply the Arabic name for God. And Imad reminded us that because Jesus spoke Aramaic, part of the family of Semitic languages, he used a name for God as he was dying on the cross that is very similar saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi is the same root for the Hebrew word Elohim and for the Arab word Allah. Dr. Nchasi, reviewed the five pillars of Islam for our class, a sort of a quick version. The first pillar is confession in Arabic, la ilaha illa ilava Muhammad Rasulallah. There is no God but God and Muhammad is the messenger of God. Muslims believe that humans are born with an innate knowledge of God and this awareness is reinforced by the natural world that God literally created us and it sustains our very existence all the time and that we are going to be accountable to our creator on the day of judgment and that what God has revealed is what humans need to know by repeatedly sending prophets and messengers, the last of whom was Muhammad. The second pillar 
is required daily prayer, five times a day, dawn, mid-morning, noon, late afternoon, evening. We were there for late afternoon prayers. Muslims are expected to stop whatever they're doing, go through a short cleansing ritual, face the direction of Mecca, and pray. And as you know, accommodating this requirement has created some tensions in workplaces, schools, and even prisons, as these daily prayers do not line up with the rhythms of our life as a culture. The third pillar is fasting during the sacred month of Ramadan, when Muslims are expected to refrain from food, drink, smoking, sexual relations with one's spouse, that is, things that are pleasurable during the daylight hours for the entire month. This intentional deprivation can seem strange in a culture of all you can eat and working for the weekend, but as the Sufi poet Rumi put it, there's a hidden sweetness in the stomach's emptiness. We are lutes, the poet said, no more, no less. If the sound box is stuffed full of anything, no music. Fasting is, of course, a universal religious practice that brings clarity like the desert does. It also reminds us that food, clean water, and material possessions that we take for granted are, in fact, gifts from God. The fourth pillar is almsgiving, or charity, and Dr. Nchasi told us that Muslims are expected to contribute 2.5% of their overall wealth, not of their income, mind you, but of the sum total of the value of everything they own. We should try this. It would end the budget shortfall in a second at Mayflower Church. The Quran also includes numerous passages like the Hebrew and Christian scriptures that underscore our obligations to assist the poor, the needy, the widow, and the orphan. And then he listed numerous mission projects run by the mosque right there in the neighborhood. The fifth and final pillar of Islam is the Hajj, or annual pilgrimage to Mecca. Muslims are expected to go if they are physically and financially able at least once in their lifetime. Why Mecca? Because Muslims believe that that is the location of the Genesis story of Hagar and Ishmael. Although the rituals that take place are too numerous to mention, the Hajj does conclude with something called the Festival of Sacrifice, based on the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac as a test of faith before, as you know, an angel intervenes and provides a ram to take his place. So millions of animals are sacrificed and the meat from those sacrifices is distributed in thirds, one-third for the family, one-third for relatives, one-third for the poor and the needy. Now this was obviously not going to be a happy spectacle if you're a vegetarian, but the meat at least is not wasted. And my point is not that we understand these ancient stories all the same way, but how much similarity there is between the five pillars of Islam and the essential tenets of traditional Judaism and Christianity. All three revere Abraham and are monotheistic. All three declare that prophets are the instruments of revelation. Muhammad's the final prophet, 
For Islam, while Christians believe Jesus is the decisive revelation of the love of God, all three Abrahamic traditions affirm the centrality of prayer, and although it is scheduled for Muslims, it comes in many forms for Jews and Christians. And I have heard Christians criticize this five prayers a day, are, they're required, so they're just an obligation, so they're really not meaningful. But hey, we might want to try praying five times a day. Would that be a bad thing, five scheduled prayers a day? But the first one is at 5 a.m., so if you're not a morning person, this will be difficult. And as for fasting, we could all do more fasting. We live in a society characterized by both obscene abundance and grinding poverty. But at both ends of that spectrum, food is often abused and eating is often a disorder that is a substitute for love and self-esteem. Fasting is a discipline that makes a counter-cultural statement. Emptiness can be a source of wisdom, cleansing, and clarity. Try it. Finally, as for charitable giving, tithing is of course well known but seldom followed biblical principle, as is the forgiveness of all debt in periodic celebrations of Jubilee. And as for the pilgrimage to Mecca, well, many Christians have a strong desire to visit the Holy Lands, do they not? And it is a universal human desire that we travel to reunions or hometowns or places associated with our sacred stories. So we are remarkably the same in our basic religious impulses, aspirations, and rituals. Why then the continued misinformation and outright lies about Islam in a word or a date that has become a word, 9-11? It represented an attack on American soil that played out before our eyes in all its horror thanks to the electronic village that is television. It produced a kind of national post-traumatic stress syndrome that gave us the Patriot Act and then betrayed some of our most cherished values. The human impulse to protect the tribe when it's attacked, to punish the enemy, and to presume that we had nothing to do with creating such hatred in the first place changed our basic character as a nation. We have still not recovered from 9-11. And since there were other terrorist acts committed since by Muslims claiming to be warriors for Allah, the media has found this manifestation of evil irresistible. They're trying to get ratings, you know. So when a terrorist is identified as Muslim, you know what we're going to see, the obligatory clip of men bowing to pray in a mosque or of Osama bin Laden, before he was captured and killed, kneeling to fire a gun, or young Muslim men running an obstacle course at a terrorist training camp. How many times did we see those images over and over and over again? So successfully have we created fear of Islam in American society that one of Dr. Taylor's students repeated what her father had said to her about her decision to take Religion 101, quote, what? So you think it's interesting that people who kidnap young girls and make them sex slaves also pray five times a day? You need to drop that class before you get recruited by ISIS. Now, what would it be like, Dr. Taylor asked, to hear these things all the time? 
about your religion and to try to teach your children to ignore what other people say about you and the things you hold most sacred. And then she quotes a line from the poet Claudia Rankin, because white men can't police their imagination, black men are dying. When asked to explain what she meant, the poet said, when white men are shooting black people, some of it is malice and some is an out of control image of blackness in their minds. In the same way, there's an out of control image of Islam in many minds that has little to do with ordinary Muslims who serve as shadow bearers for people with no wish to explore their own shadows. Jonathan Sachs, a renowned rabbi, said something our class found amazing. Quote, it is not our religion that makes us violent. Instead, it is our penchant for violence that gives rise to our religious impulse. People are born with two sets of primal instincts, altruism toward those in our own group and aggression toward others. And in daily life, this dynamic shows up in everything from football rivalry and political affiliation to racial division and armed combat. Our class, in fact, was so impressed by everything Jonathan Sachs said in this book that the class has demanded that I find out where he lives, call him up, and invite him to Mayflower to speak. So I'm working on that. And to close, may I just say something about this class? It has really been unlike anything I've ever experienced at Mayflower. Not only the size of it, but the willingness of everyone to go traipsing around to visit houses of worship that many had never visited and some did not know existed. And you know what? It has changed us. It has changed all of us, not just because of what we've learned, but because of the faces that now hang in the gallery of our minds. Dr. Arkarya Veda at the Hindu temple. He was hard to understand, but his giggle was unmistakable as he worked through an hour and a half lecture on Hinduism for clueless congregationalists. David Rose, the calm and logical former pilot, explained the eightfold path of Buddhism with examples from the world we actually live in and told us how to reduce our suffering without appeals to God by controlling our minds and the illusions to which we're addicted. It was amazing. During High Holy Days, Rabbi Vered Harris walked us through the world of a Shabbat service, explaining everything that was happening in front of her own people, all of whom already knew what was happening, and then fed us, fed us afterwards. We learned a little Hebrew, but we learned a lot about hospitality. And then finally, Ahmad and Shasi, who spent an hour and a half with us at the mosque and gave us the run of the place, feeding us also what he called holy food, which was food with holes in it, AKA donuts. <laughs> and then he invited us to stay and pray the afternoon prayers, which many of us did prone with our noses to the floor in front of us. Now you've seen nothing until you've seen a Congregationalist prostrate on the floor with his nose or her nose 
facing Mecca. I'm just saying it's a memory. It's something that I'll never forget. We discovered what Dr. Taylor discovered when she took the same four field trips, that every group welcomed us with grace and with open arms and without malice, even in this divided world. And so we experienced holy envy. And we dipped our toes into the water of the religious diversity that's all around us. Yes, even in Oklahoma, you would be amazed. And just one final thought, since the Trinity is such a problem for Jews and Muslims, and such a problem for yours truly, <laughs> may I suggest that the Holy Trinity of our class was really this, meet one another, talk to one another, eat with one another. And our benediction was simple. Let's stop trying to convert one another except through holy envy. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.